Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we read a book, count the letters, assign a price, and sell it back to you. That price? It's our opinions. What are you talking about? Are you going off of counting the cost? Yeah. The title of this memoir? I have a better one. Okay. Okay. Do you guys remember back in the olden days when the Catholic Church wouldn't let any of the peasants learn to read so that then they just told them what the Bible was saying and were like, trust us? We're God. We're the Catholic Church in like 1404. (laughs) I don't know. We're kind of like Arkansas in 2023. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, don't read the primary source. Just trust us. First of all, tour. We have so few dates left. We have LA on January 19th. We have Phoenix on January 18th. We also have our Winter Spectacular at the Bell House. There may or may not be tickets left. I cannot guarantee So hopefully you jumped on it when there was still a chance. And if not, maybe there's a standby list because it's going to be a really fun show. It's going to be, as some would say, spectacular. Yeah. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would you call last week's chapter? I would call it a business audit. Did you audit our business? No, I audited my personal business. You mean you did your expenses? No, mentally I thought back on it. Can I say, I feel like something about auditing quite literally means like not just thinking, but like writing down and like checking. But okay, continue. And then how come Scientology calls it an audit? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. (laughs) You meant the Scientology version, not the CPA version. I never mean the CPA version. You can audit that forever. (laughs) Okay, continue. Tell us more. Um, Okay, so I ran into an old coworker the day after I like ate dinner. The day after you ate dinner. Which day was that? I went to dinner with some friends at a restaurant that now exists in a place where we used to always go eat when I worked at this office. So it's like down the block from an office where I had a lot of problems. Got it. The next day I was on a run and I ran into the person that fired me from that office. Oh my God. Like the person who sat me down and said, shit's obviously not working out and today's your last day. And I was like, whoa. And we stopped to chat for a second and we had a pleasant little conversation with tension just dangling from the trees like Halloween decor. And then I walked away and I was like, maybe I am sometimes the problem at offices. (laughs) And I thought about it and I thought about how I handle business. And I thought, wow, it took a lot of firings to get me here. And I'm glad that everything happened exactly the way it did. I audited and I said, everything's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) Chucked the books, checked the balances and said, ooey, spot on. (laughs) I love that journey for you. Nothing like looking back through your life and going, the patterns were perfect and I was always correct. (laughs) I guess I was always completely wrong, but I'm glad I was, you know? You were wrong in all the right ways. Totally. Claire, if you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? 31, having some fun. Ooh. Today is my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. I'm turning 31. Well, do you know what time you were born? I think it's like 10, 15 a.m. or something. Oh my God. I was 11, 18 a.m. We were always meant to be friends. I just had a really great past couple of days. Like we spent Wednesday, Thursday in Nashville and Atlanta and we did shows and I had such like an attitude of gratitude because I had so much fun getting to meet the worms is always so rewarding. It really is like my favorite part of doing this is getting to meet people and perform live. It's our foundation is what brought us together. That's the thing that makes me feel alive and like excited and then get to meet people. It's such like a nice break 
it's hard online. You could get a hundred nice comments and one mean one like really fucks with you. But in real life, you're like, oh, these are human beings and we're connecting and I'm so happy to meet you guys. And I'm always so grateful. Someone brought us a friendship bracelet. Someone brought us a donut. Like I just said, like the someone best. Someone brought one. us a crochet worm. Oh my God, we have to put that up on the on the wall. So that was amazing. And then I went to Miami for my friend's bachelorette and it was just three of us. And we had truly a perfect weekend. I don't think I felt like that relaxed and chilled in like years. It was so much fun. I mean, it was such a great time. And I kept comparing it. I was like, when was the last time I was here? Like, I was like, I feel like I've been to Miami before. Like, why does this feel familiar? But I couldn't figure out when I had been there. And I had blocked it out per trauma. The last time I'd been to Miami was like a horrible, toxic friendship breakup girls trip where we're all like piled into two rooms for as cheap as possible. And we're all bickering and we've all been mad. And the group shot has been tense for months and nobody will admit it. And then it explodes on the beach. And it was so stressful. And to be there with like two people that I was like, you know, it sucked going through all that chaos and tension, but to come out on the other side and have friends like I love and that love me. And also just to be at a phase of my life where we don't have to play the game of like, we're taking two red eyes to save $70. And if we never sleep and if we like steal from a buffet and only eat CVS snacks, like we can afford I'm like, it was nice to be able to be like, it's okay. Like we can all have our own bed. Imagine that. Being 31 is the best. And especially because one of the essays we did for the live show was this Lena Dunham essay about how turning 33, she lost all of her joy for life and how you're so old and brittle. And I was like, that's not true. I'm 31 and it's never been better. Whatever the lies were that it is only good at 20, it literally is only better when you're 30. And then I will say Sunday night, I was flossing my teeth and a tooth popped out. (laughs) I now am covering a hole in my mouth with orthodontal wax so that I can take a breath and not have like raw nerve dry socket because I am falling to pieces literally from like a bone density, which is weird because I drink so much milk. So I'm like, I still would rather be 31 down a tooth (laughs) than 29 and anxious about the vibes yeah good vibes no teeth that's your 30s baby that's what you've always hoped for actually (laughs) i've always said pull them all out i'm done (laughs) unfortunate manifestation works claire has been on a rooftop screaming i want to be happy and i want no teeth (laughs) i just want to stop playing the game of trying to keep them alive let them die and let me start fresh give me veneers like kyle richards or miley cyrus why them not me Speaking of a veneer. Ooh, yeah, that's a really good segue. Thank you. Should we get into Counting the Cost, a memoir by Jill Duggar, a.k.a. Dillard? All right, listen up, you little bitches. I don't say this a lot, so you're going to want to write it down. (laughs) I think for the second time in CNBC history, we have begrudgingly read a book that you guys kept begging for and we assumed would be a bad book because sometimes you guys beg and beg and beg and I go, this book is recipes for granola. Or this book is nonsense Facebook captions that this have been spliced together. It was just, where's Waldo? This book was good. Was pretty good. I don't know if it was just because I was on a plane or if it's because my tooth was about to fall out. So my body was already in a weakened state. <laughs> but I was crying reading it. Yeah. I was brought to tears multiple times. I will say that was definitely the plane of the tooth thing. I really enjoyed it and I thought it was very effective. It didn't like move me to tears at any point. What about the birth trauma? I was like stressed, but I wasn't crying. Yeah, I think it might have been the plane because I also watched Crazy Rich Asians on the plane and like I was just like bawling. Oh, that movie actually does make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so this was a good book. I do want to trigger Warren up top. Religious trauma, sexual assault trauma, birth story trauma. This book is a book about the religious trauma of being a sexual assault victim. Yeah. In a cult. Yeah. And it sucks to be that. It does suck to be that. 
I talk a lot of shit about religion, but I really think it's just like the weaponization of shame and organized religion that I do think is one of the more horrendous things that happens to people. And can I even say, I don't even think it would be bad if it was evenly distributed. Yeah. I, I mean, I do, but I also am like, it does make it worse that it is at the girls. Shames the men. They're embarrassing. I mean, and they're also literally evil for the most part. I'm sorry. Her husband, Derek, like gets off by just like not being really mean. By saying she's allowed to wear pants. Anyway, so let's get into this book about the Duggar family. For those of you who don't know, which I don't know, you must know. But in case you don't, the Duggar family was a family that was all over TLC, the network, for decades. They had a TV show called 19 Kids and Counting because they just had a lot of kids and they kept counting. So their whole shtick is that they all have J names because the dad has J names. The dad is Jim Bob, which Ugh. right off the jump, that's a bad name. Sorry if your name is Jim Bob, but you need to change it or at least just go by Jim. Jim is a fine go by Bob even. But you can't go by both. You can't be a Jim Bob. No. Okay, so they have 19 kids, clearly a lot of girls. And when you only use J names, you are obviously limited. I will say you're not that limited. There are a lot of names and they went weird with it. And they, they will even appropriate a G name. So that's like a lot of options. And yet they still have Jana, Joanna, and Joanna. There was room to switch it up there, I think. They waited till the child 17 to bust out Jennifer. <laughs> so the prologue just kind of sets the stage for the rules inflicted upon these Duggar kids. When this book starts out, she's in her 20s and engaged and they like are sledding with all their siblings and the mom calls out boys and girls cannot be on the same sled because she's about to sled down a hill with her fiance. But that's like too touchy-feely. And so it gets called out and she feels like a burning shame of like knowing the rules and having broken them. On that day in the snowy front yard with the empty sled between us and all those eyes on Derek and me, I was unable to see things clearly. It was the same a month later when Derek proposed to me and I made sure that when I said yes, the film crew got the shot just how they wanted it. I couldn't see my life from the outside. It didn't stay that way. Soon, the bewilderment would be mine. That's about how like their whole lives growing up, whenever they went out in public, she could tell that people would stare at the weird way they live their life. And she was like, you guys are crazy. And now she's like, maybe we're crazy. <laughs> maybe it was an odd sitch. So then we jump into her childhood Whenever she refers to her wide-eyed, innocent, younger self, she calls her her nickname Jilly Muffin. Sweet Jilly Muffin. And I will say it is effective, but as the book goes on, it gets like more and more uncomfortable when she's like, sweet Jilly Muffin would never believe what I'm up to now. And I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, you are no longer eight. This beginning part is setting the scene of how happy they were as a family, how much they loved the rules and the religion, but how crazy and strict it was. And this is another thing is like she is unable to condemn like a lot of her early child because she's like, yeah, it was strict, but like we were happy. And still at the end of the book, she looks back on it and she's like, those years were really good and they were not allowed to dance. Hey, guys, listen, mom would say. We don't dance. Remember, we want to be careful how we move our bodies so we don't draw attention to the wrong areas. It's okay to jump for joy when we're excited, but we don't dance. So when they would listen to music, they were allowed to just like jump straight up and down, but you can't move your body in any way because it would like create temptation for men. Dancing was off limits, so I learned from a young age how to be a hunter. And what she means is approval. I was hands down the best approval hunter in the whole Duggar family. She, growing up, was the ideal child. She never tattled. She never was wrong. She took so much pride in being the stillest, the best. She loved when they all sat down to Bible time at night. And she loved to like be the first one in the right spot. Like she loved anticipating her parents' wants and needs. 
and then like doing the right thing before she was even asked to do anything. I tried my hardest to stand out as the most mature child in the room. For an approval hunter like me, being compared to my mom was the greatest prize I could ever wish for. Mom was calm, self-sacrificing, and entirely loving. As a young child, I never experienced my parents as overbearing or domineering. Instead, in my young eyes, they were as loving and fun and wonderful as any girl could hope for. So they were homeschooled their whole lives, which is a huge foundational principle of, I don't even call it the kind of church they were in, like their cult. So they were a part of the IBPL, which is a cult type church run by Bill Gothard. So it's like within the teachings of the Bible, they create an intense amount of triple strictness because they believe that if you like accidentally sin, then you're fucked. And so like you have to create these rules so you don't even get close to it. Like you want to remain 15 steps from the ledge at all times. And we get much more into it on a Patreon episode we did with Bundy Fridays, where we talked about Ginger Duggar's book, which we actually read and decided to not cover. And I do think that that book provided a good foundation for this book and like understanding the Bible teachings and unteachings that they went through. But I don't think it was like a good memoir. This is like about their story. Yeah. Ginger is still not willing to break the primary foundation of the IBPL movement, which is that you're never allowed to question your parents ever in your life, not even when you're married and not even when they're dead. Yeah. So she's able to take out a lot of anger at Bill Gothard, not her family. Yeah. Which I don't think I'm saying you're not allowed to do that, but it just didn't make for a good book to discuss. I will say one thing about this book is it has one specific story she wants to tell you and she's not going to get too deep into the rest of it. So these first chapters really are just like our childhood was fun. There was a million of us. We loved it. Right out the bat, she took a lot of pride in the fact that she was allowed to care for her little sisters and siblings. And she thought it was so cool that at 10 years old, she's already getting them dressed and making them breakfast and preparing them for the day. And like at 12 years old, she was driving to the store to like get groceries for her family. And I'm like, oof, oof. And because they were always alone and they like were always homeschooled, they very rarely had any interaction with anybody else. And they really felt bad for them for being sinners. I told myself that whenever we were in situations like that where we stood out, it was an opportunity to be a positive example to others just by living life and showing others how true conservative Christians should live, set apart and unpolluted by the world. And she talks about her parents and their stories of coming to God and the version of God that they believe in and like how there was this inspiring story where her dad used to listen to like regular rock music, but like they believe in their sect of Christianity that you can't even listen to music with drums. And her dad like understood and learned this when he was 13 years old and went home and like destroyed all of his CDs. They wouldn't even listen to Christian rock because they're like, that's just devil music with Christian words on top. And then this line I just wanted to say for anyone who is in a rock band and like needs one of the most fucking rock and roll things I've ever heard to put on a t-shirt or something. The dad said when the drums get going, the backbeat has so much power it can control us. And that's why they can't listen to it. And I'm like, oh my God, that's such a vibe. <laughs> it's so true. You know how I get around like a drum line? Exactly. Too much power. The sin, the sin. <laughs> and she talks more about some of Gothard's teachings and the way that it like created this funnel with him at the center. And they were all trying to live according to the rules that would like make them get his approval. The first time they went to an IBPL conference, she learned about these model families, the families that were doing everything so perfectly that they got to be like brought up on stage and celebrated. She says, we weren't a model family yet. And one of the big things, of course, as you can probably tell by their friggy big family is that children are a blessing from the Lord and you may not stand in the Lord's way of giving that gift. If somebody was offering you a million dollars, would you refuse it? That's what you're doing if you're standing in the way of God's plan for you to have more children. Reject children and you're rejecting the very blessing of God. 
Even though he spoke passionately about the value of children and the importance of large families, he was single. He had never been married and had no children, yet I never heard any one of us at the conference take issue with it. Mr. Gothard wasn't like the rest of us. The usual rules didn't seem to apply to him. She talks about the code words they had within their family because they also learned the value of like not making other people uncomfortable when they're doing things that you wouldn't approve of. Like they see a girl wearing a crop top at a gas station and they were like, oh my God, this is insane. And they came up with the code word Nike, which was like when you see something not godly, just like look at your shoes because they didn't want to make the girl feel bad for not knowing enough about God that she would put herself out there in a crop top and like create sin for men. The mom admits like when they're like, well, why do we have to speak in code words? She's like, I actually used to wear a bikini before I knew about God. And they were like, wow, the fact that she was willing to admit that to us, like it all contributes to this story of like vulnerability and growth towards God that their parents have. IBLP wasn't the only expansion in our world at the time. My dad started to get involved in politics, successfully running for state legislator in 1998. Also, of course, obviously, you're not even allowed to touch anybody who's of a different gender. The only person you should ever kiss is the person you marry on your wedding day. I liked the simple rule. It made sense to me. But later, as we got older and the first of the Duggar kids approached puberty, the lessons became more complex. So they learned that when women wear tight or revealing clothing that show parts of their skin between their collarbones and knees, it gets guys going and can stir up sensual desires. It can make them think bad thoughts. When girls do that to men, they're defrauding them. That's not good and it can lead them to sin. And so around this time is when Josh, the oldest brother, gets sent away for the first time. She doesn't really explain here what she was told, but essentially we find out later that her parents basically let her know that Josh had confessed to molesting her in her sleep. We just kind of get that she was taken aside. She was told that Josh was being sent away and it was like a traumatic experience for her. So they were always told one of the big lessons of their family is don't do anything to hurt the brethren or whatever. And like you were punished if you were a tattletale. And this was meant to be like, don't stir up contention between your family. You don't rat on your family. You don't speak to them about things that might make them jealous. They were basically in this giant family and told to live in a cone of silence. Yeah. So essentially, it created this space where like you would think that having 19 siblings or 18 siblings or however many like you have people you can talk to and relate to about your experience. But they were taught very specifically that essentially it's about protecting the parents and like the order of respect, basically. It was a way for our parents to keep us siblings from talking badly about each other or putting anyone down. But over time, it became something else, something much more sinister. By preventing us from discussing anything controversial or sensitive with each other, the instruction not to stir up contention among the brethren became a tool for silence, for control, for guilt. Yes. So then the dad runs for Senate. Why did he decide to do that? He prayed about it for a while. And then he flipped three coins. Yeah. So first he's like, I think God is telling me to do this. And then he flipped a coin three times and he got heads all three times. And he's like, well, that's God. Yeah. So he runs for Senate. And he doesn't win. But what happens is there's this huge article written about their family, about this kook, this Christian kook down in, where are they? Arkansas. Arkansas. Who's running for the Senate. And has like a billion kids. And so then Pops got a call from the magazine that they wanted to hear more about our family and run a feature on us. He wasn't sure at first, but he decided that they prayed on it and that if people saw them, they'd be more likely to learn about God. So he says this was God's purpose in asking him to run for Senate. So running for Senate put their name out there. It attracted publicity. And now publicity wanted to use them to get the word of God out further. So this is their ministry. So first comes this feature. And then Discovery Health is like, we want to do a one-time documentary about you. The documentary is like hugely successful. So then they come back and do four or five more. And then other countries are doing documentaries. And she's like, it's funny, you know, the people from Japan, they only came like four hours a day, three or four times a week. But the people from Russia, they were there for like 12 straight hours nonstop. 
Yeah, so they start getting a lot of TV stuff made about them. And then finally, Discovery slash TLC come and they're like, we want to actually just make this a full-on TV show. And she notices, as this is all happening, their lives upgrade. First, it's just one production is present and they like go grocery shopping on camera. Production foots the bill. So they're able to get just like whatever they want because they're not paying for their own groceries. Then they move from like a house where they're all sharing, I think, two bedrooms They start like hand building a much, much bigger house that they call the big house. And they're like on camera, all building a house. Still to this day, she's like, that was an incredible experience. I know how to use a drill now. Production also sent people to help them finish the house. Yeah, when they weren't going to be finished on time, they sent in a full crew plus an interior decorator from New York and bought all the furniture. So at first it was just like perks, perks on perks. And she was like, it was stressful having to like be on camera. And at first she was really nervous. She's like, I couldn't be in the same room as the crew without just like full blushing. She says they wanted to show the viewers that we all shared the two bathrooms in the house, but it left me feeling embarrassed and uncomfortable and a little unsafe. Not that I could express any of that to my parents. This was a God-given window of opportunity. The best thing that I could do was bury my feelings. And that is how the family talks about it. It's a God-given window of opportunity. Clearly, if these blessings are being heaped upon them, this is God saying, this is what I want from you. The big line from the family is, every time we get this window of opportunity, we'll take it. The minute that it seems that this is not what God wants, we'll be happy when it's over. Yes. But then they change it to the ministry. So when they get the full-time series, 14 children and pregnant again, he keeps going, we felt that God wanted us to share with the world the message that children are a blessing from the Lord. And now it's the number one show on the channel. God is blessing this. God is using us to share his message with the world. From that moment on, we didn't just talk about the window of opportunity. Now we had a new name for what we were doing. It was our ministry. I was excited at the thought of all these people across America watching and getting to see Christian values lived out in a secular television channel and maybe even inspiring them to live for Christ. So it's also helping them move up within the IBPL. Mr. Gothard has taken notice and he comes over to the house for dinner and they like can't believe that this incredible figure is coming into their home. Mr. Gothard was a legend, a man we all looked up to. To have his intention on me for just a few seconds was enough to leave me feeling on top of the world. And so for the first time, they're now on the inside of this cult, the IBPL. We knew the inner workings of IBLP, but we knew enough to already understand why it was only Jana who was invited. So like they're getting all these perks or considered a model family. Jana gets to go work at the headquarters in Chicago. Mr. Gothard liked blonde girls. We'd joke about it calling Jana one of Gothard's girls. It didn't occur to me how strange, unsafe and unwise it was. It started with a letter. Way back before Josh had been sent away, Josh had been courting a girl. He must have confessed to her vaguely about the abuse that he had committed, because I heard later that the girl had written a letter to him expressing her anger at what he'd done. But instead of sending it to him, she tucked it away in a book. Four years later, in 2006, the book was loaned to a friend and the letter surfaced. They told people in the church. They informed DHS. It was alerted to the authorities that there was a potentially abusive situation. Yeah. So DHS came to their house, questioned all the girls, and the mom said, just tell the truth. So this was a closed conversation that she had with these public officials about the abuse that she endured, that she had found out from that time that her parents sat her down a few years before the first time Josh was sent away. Something interesting about this book is so I don't really know anything about the Duggars. I vaguely knew that Josh was a pedophile and had been arrested. Like I kind of had heard. There are no details here. There's no... I wasn't even sure that she had been one of the victims of the molestation. And it's not even clear until later in the book. Yes. So when she's like, there was an abuse and Josh was sent away, it later come out that Josh had abused some people in the family. And then she's like, yeah, we all had to talk to the investigators. I didn't realize that she was like speaking as a victim. 
Yes. One thing that makes me so sad for her and like my heart breaks for her in this book is I don't think she ever gets to address the pain that Josh caused her from that childhood molestation. It's only ever the pain of it being brought up again by the public. Yeah. Which is valid. She's like, it was worse than the first time when like all of society was judging me and looking at me and like prying into my business. And I'm like, I believe that. But it's never addressed or acknowledged how painful what Josh did to her was or how painful the way her dad handled it was. Yeah. She kind of talks about it as three traumas. There is the initial occurrence of the abuse. But that gets the least amount of like even consequence, personal consequence. Right. But that's what I was going to say. So there's the initial occurrence of the abuse and her finding out that it had happened to her, which I think was actually separate, but we'll lump that in as one trauma. Then there is the DHS investigation and she found that to be extremely traumatic. And then there is the public outing of this conversation And she says that with the DHS investigation, that's when she was offered some counseling. But she's like, I mean, I took it and I think that it was kind of helpful. But like the initial trauma and the resurgence of the trauma are the two times that I felt like most traumatized. Yeah. It's never about the individual in this family. It's specifically not about your daughter. It's about the fallout of the family. That's what I was going to say is it is kind of about the individual because there was a lot being done to... Protect Josh. Protect the individual that is Josh. It was not about the victims. It was about what's going to happen to Josh and how will this affect the family. Yes. And the family's reputation and the family's ability to get rich off of TV. Yes. And not the family's ability to get rich off of TV also. That is also about the individual. It was about Jim Bob's ability to get rich off of TV mm-hmm. and occasionally provide for the family. Yeah. So it was not about the daughters. It was not about the victims. It had gotten out in their church. Obviously, the person who found the letter had told not just the investigation, but people that they used to be friends with. They used to be a part of this church community. Some families treated us kindly and with compassion, but I believed that others were jealous of our success and with the television show and treated us with suspicion. They threw us to the wolves, Pop said when the investigation concluded. They did not stick up for us at all. They're the ones who made this happen. They're the ones who allowed DHS to investigate our family, even though we had already taken care of it. So this splits their entire church. The fallout was immense. We didn't know who we could trust, who was there for us and who was against us. We pulled back from the church, no longer allowing them to host services at the big house. Created a deep divide within our church and in time, inevitably, I guess the church split. So then she gets into another principle of Gothard's teachings and of their church, which is clipped wings. So basically, they say that there is this like umbrella system. That's the way family units are viewed. You are always under the authority of your parents. And when you get married, you're then bringing more people under this umbrella. It's very confusing because if there's two people in a marriage and they both are supposed to respect their parents' wishes, like they don't I guess they don't really mean that. Yeah, the thing don't. about these cults that I found very interesting, I read this whole article about, what was that like insane one that would take like posters to funerals? I remember reading this article in New Yorker and it was like, oh, this was literally just like one grandpa with 30 grandkids. Yeah. But they made such a racket that I assumed it was this whole like evangelical system. And I'm like, oh. The Westboro Baptist the Church. The Westboro Baptist Church. Yes. And I feel that way about this. Like they're like, you got to listen to your parents, but there's only like 12 parents in our belief system. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's coming from this culty mindset of what they mean is listen to us. Yes, literally. We assume we're stricter than anybody else you can marry's parents. So when you're defaulting to the laws, our laws will be the toughest. Yeah. And so that is like a major principle within this that really has her in a chokehold. This like, you must respect your parents. They are always your number one authority. And one of the things that they do to encourage this within her culty little church is that they like have this clipped wings policy where it's completely normal for your daughters to stay under your roof until they're married. College is not even considered, especially coming from like a homeschool environment. No one even really thinks about it, especially for the girls. And the men, it's encouraged that the dads start businesses so that they can then hire the sons 
So the sons are always working under the dad's authority and are always kind of under the dad's authority. And essentially the way Jim Bob creates his Clipped Wings business is the TV show. Yeah. But she does invest wisely, I will say. He created a little empire. He used that to buy car dealerships. And then he also used it to buy rental properties. So they just kept expanding, expanding. Yes, but it was always under his finances. And because he's buying all these rental properties, a kid would get married and he'd be like, oh, you can stay in this house. And they never really think about the finances of living life because they're always under the umbrella of Jimmy Bob. The presence of the film crew brought plenty of good things, but I quickly grew to dislike the way they sometimes wanted to spring surprises on us. I guess it made for good TV to see us react in real time to the news of whatever challenge or adventure they'd set us up for, even if it was just an escape room or a trip to a park. But it got to the point where I was feeling the stress nearly every time they were filming. Either I was trying to bury my discomfort and anxiety when they sprung a surprise on us or fake my joy when they were filming something we'd already rehearsed. I had to keep my reality far away from the TV. I felt like the success of the show also changed the way we were viewed by the leaders of the IBLP. We were still way less polished than the other model families, but the fact that we were airing almost every week of the year made us appealing in other ways. So they become top IBLP people. But they're also starting to get hate. And of course, they're kept away from a lot of the online hate. Like they don't really get easy access to the internet. They also at this point, I don't think even have a TV. So they're like aware that their show is airing to millions, but they have like no concept. I think they have to send them the final episode clips via VCR. Yeah. But they are getting hate mail that like physical mail that they have to go through. And I think it's kind of jarring for them. And then they start viewing it as if you're not upsetting people, then you're not pushing the blessings of God hard enough or something. So Josh is back. But no matter how much Pops try to keep our wings clipped or how badly he tried to keep us huddled and close underneath his own personal umbrella of protection, there was one child he couldn't prevent from making mistakes. It was Josh. A few years after he was first sent away, he was in trouble again. He had been caught looking at pornography on the phone of somebody he'd been working with. And this was just standard porn. And so he's sent to rehab. So what they did the first time he got caught and sent him away was they sent him to some Christian work camp where you do like construction all day. I guess if you're tired, you can't be horny, but I don't know if that's like super effective. And now this time they sent him to a Christian rehab and they get word that like he's doing so well and he's the leader and he's in the kitchen. He's cooking for the other pervs (laughs) and everybody likes him at Christian pervert camp. (laughs) I don't think it's just perv camp because later Derek has like a beer and Jim Bob is like, I know a rehab (laughs) for pervs and drunks. May we know them, may we raise them, may we be them. (laughs) As the show grew, Pops got more into buying real estate and focusing on maintaining what he had. But whenever he was talking about the show and the ministry, the impact he thought it was having, he really came alive. So basically, she does notice the way her dad is like really reveling in his financial success. And also angling it towards being like, this is actually a God success. Like, I'm so rich because I'm spreading the word of God really good, which is like straight up evangelical shenanigans. And like the clout of it all. And she has this memory of Pops wanted some guy to come film with them. And the guy was like, I don't feel I'm called to do that. I don't think that's my ministry. Like, I believe and talk to people one on one. And Pops was frustrated by the pushback. So he tried a different angle. Just picture yourself in a stadium and someone gives you a microphone. You can speak to everyone in the stadium and tell them about the Lord. You'd take that opportunity in a heartbeat, wouldn't you? I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? And the guy, this is actually like really impactful to me. He goes, I don't know, Mr. Duggar. Not if God told me to go and talk to the person under the bleachers. If I knew that the Lord wanted me to go talk to the one instead of the thousands, then I'd have to obey. And so Pops is like proud of his work in this story, even though he's wrong. He goes, Uh, no way. God would never tell you to do that. (laughs) 
And this story is the first time, I mean, according to this book, this is the first time she acknowledges like questioning what her dad is saying. She says, was Pops really saying that he believed it was always God's desire for people to be involved in whichever ministry reached more people? And was he telling our friend that he knew God's will for this guy's life and that it included filming? Was he really saying that to trust God's timing, we have to be able to see the results in our lifetime? That was contrary to what we'd always been taught. She really has this like kind of step back moment where it doesn't shake her foundation yet, but like it does crack the glass a little bit where she's like, okay, fame has gone to this fella's noggin. So now at this point, you know, she's a teenager and you guys remember what it's like to be a teenager. Horny times. She had decided that she was just going to avoid the problematic courtship situation by just not. So the way courtship exists is you can't kiss until your wedding day or spend time alone with someone of the opposite sex until your wedding day. Or approach a man if you are a woman. Or approach a man if you are a woman. What you can do is say, I love you once you're officially courting. So a man has to request courting with a girl. And then what you do is you like go on hangout sessions with a chaperone and then you get engaged. And from engagement, you're allowed to hold hands and then you get married and you can kiss. And from kissing, I think you're like immediately supposed to boink. That's really a lot to do in one day. That's a big day. (laughs) I know even a week. (laughs) So Josh navigated it all and got married when he was 20. She's now 21 and she's never courted anybody. And she's just like too anxious to even begin the process because she's also like, it has to be someone that my parents approve of because they have to okay the initial courting. And if they're not going to okay the initial courting, there's no point in even like knowing someone of the opposite sex. And her dad has this missionary that he talks to on the phone sometimes named Derek, who's on a mission in Nepal. And he has a blog and the dad is like, why don't you look up Derek's blog? This guy's actually so great. So she looks up Derek's blog and is like, he is handsome and good to God. Then one day the dad calls her in and he's like, hey, I'm going to have a phone call with Derek. But then he turns on speakerphone and is like, Derek, talk to my daughter. And so they start talking on the phone. But she's pissed. She like does not like that her dad is doing this to her. She doesn't like that her dad is just like putting her on the spot and being like, I found your boyfriend. Go. But she ends up getting a crush on Derek and then they're going to go to Nepal. But she's like, I don't have time. I'm in midwifery school. And so then she like talks to production and they are like, we can coordinate a trip to Nepal, but you have to like meet your boyfriend on camera. And she's like, no. And then they're like, okay, then how do you want to go to Nepal? And she's like, never mind. We can meet on camera. So she goes, I'll give you the first week and then you guys can leave and we can even film like a fake goodbye scene. But then I need a week alone with him because this is literally she'll be given two weeks to meet this man in Nepal and decide if he's going to be like the father of her children or not. That is crazy. That is crazy. I think she's like, I was just like like a day off camera, please. I feel like the crazy part isn't even the filming part of it. Because I feel like either way, it would have still been like two weeks in Nepal to decide if you want to be engaged to this man. Like that was the religion. That wasn't the shooting schedule. I don't know. Then why do so many people on reality TV end up married very quickly? Okay. Talk to me about The Bachelor. Talk to me about Bachelor in Paradise. (laughs) Talk to me about how much Christianity there is in those shows. Anyway, God is on the beach. (laughs) And she like also acknowledges the pressures of this show where she's like, I get that they're just like filming us, but there's so much pressure to entertain because at the end of the day, it is a TV show. So if we're just like hanging out, living our lives, that's not actually that interesting. So she like knows the pressure to perform milestones for the show. So they go, she meets Derek in Nepal. They have a really incredible week. They have a week where they're filming and then they have a week where they like get time to just get to know each other, even though the dad is there as chaperone, like they don't ever get time alone, of course, because that's the religion. 
So they spend time getting to know each other for an extra week. And she is in love with this mofo. And then his mission ends and he comes back to Arkansas and they get engaged and then they plan a wedding. His dad had passed away a few years before. And as they're planning their wedding, his mom is diagnosed with stage four cancer. She ends up making it through, but like in the midst of planning this wedding, like for television with a guy that she's known for like seven minutes that she's also like still not even allowed to be alone in a room with. He is about to potentially lose his mom. The more I understood that while it was still a ministry for Pops and the rest of us, it was something else entirely different for the network that created us. The show and by extension, the entire Duggar family was a vehicle for profit. A guy asking Pops permission to marry a Duggar girl or the proposal itself were some of the best TV moments, but there was practically no room for spontaneity. Saying no to the cameras was not an option. The only comfort I could find was thinking about mom. I knew she didn't like her birth being filmed and she went along and did it anyway. If she could put up with that, so could I. So they're planning this wedding, potentially for like Derek's last living parent who may have weeks to go. And the production is like, basically, it's our wedding. They're like, nobody's allowed to take a photo of you on their phones because we're selling all the photos to people. Also, the guest list balloons up to 2,000. How could you have 2,000 people at a wedding? Her dad has hired someone named Chad to be like his assistant. And the day before the wedding, she's got all these things flying around. Her mother-in-law is on death's door. Her wedding is tomorrow. There are 2,000 people invited. It's like going to be broadcast on television. She's never been in a room alone with her husband. Chad comes to her with like a contract. And it's like, oh, can you sign this really quick? And he doesn't even give her the full contract. It's just the signature page. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. She like thinks it's something about production. She like doesn't really understand what it is and like doesn't ask because she trusts her dad. I didn't see any extra papers to read and I didn't really know what it was about, but I didn't question my dad. After all, in all of my life, I never had a reason not to trust Pops. He knew best and always had. So I picked up the pen and signed. So they get married. Derek's mom does make it to the wedding. They have their first kiss ever. The show gave me so much. and I'm grateful the places I've been, the moments I've enjoyed, the people I've met. But some things are not worth the cost. Some things are not for sale. And among all the emotional turbulence that we were going through in the run up to the wedding, I was always clear our honeymoon would not be on the show. Yeah. So the first time she really stands up to production is to say, like, we're not filming our honeymoon. And she's like, I had seen what they had done to my brother Josh and his wife and the way that they had like edited them to look like naive little idiots who were going to go have sex for the first time, which I'm like, well, what were they? (laughs) And she's like, that's not what I wanted them to do to us. And I'm like, that is valid. That's valid. And she's like, I get that if production pays for your honeymoon, you get like a fancier honeymoon. But she also says that Josh and his wife just like went to South Carolina. And they went to North Carolina. I didn't know that there was like a production value difference between North and South. Yeah. Anyway, they come back and they get great news that the chemo worked and his mother's going to survive. Then on Sunday evening, when we'd been married just a month, I got more news to be excited about. I found out I was pregnant. Fertile Myrtle. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So they are one month out from the wedding. I didn't even know you could find out that soon. Me either. I can't believe they planned her wedding around her ovulation schedule. I guess it was like from that hug before the wedding. (laughs) I feel like these years have been jammed, packed with milestones. And so this holiday season, I want to give my loved ones a gift that makes them feel special and unique. I'm giving everyone I care about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It's a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. So StoryWorth every week emails your relatives or friends a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of questions and each unique prompt acts questions you have never even thought to ask, like what's the bravest thing you've ever done? If you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? 
After a year, StoryWorth compiles all of your loved ones' stories, including photos, into the most beautiful keepsake book that you can share and revisit for generations to come. I feel like this is such a beautiful way to help preserve like the memories and the thoughts of like where everyone was on certain days. Even more than just like the major milestone dates in the year to look back at every single day and be like, oh my gosh, this is where we were at. And it was a treat. Reading the weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones, no matter how near or far apart you are. With StoryWorth, I'm giving those I love most a thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com slash worm to save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash worm to save $10 on your first purchase. So Jill and Derek are happily married. I will say I am very suspicious of this fella, Derek. To me, it's like Brooke Shields' Andre Agassi, where I do think she needed a husband to like stand up for some of the bullshit that like the other people in her life. She needed like an intense bad man to get her away from bad man one. Yeah. Like in order to separate her from her dad, she needed an asshole. And I get that like now they have a family. And so like she's never going to leave him. I just like I can't approve of this man. Also, I do think like there's only so much unprogramming you can do like I don't think she wants to leave him no I completely agree one of the things I'm a little bit suspicious of is like why he ended up with her in the first place because I do think there was like a level of prestige they met because he was calling the dad for advice right I wonder if he like saw the big house the tv show all these things and thought that he was marrying a more financially lucrative sitch I guess I just don't even think it has to be just about the money I think like the Christian clout of it all I agree Money was an aspect. I think Christian Clout was an aspect. I don't think he wanted to be on TV necessarily, but I think that he like was a moth to a flame. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so they are married. They don't get a lot of time alone because Derek has a full-time job and they are still like owing about 20 hours a week to production. I can understand why it was annoying for the crew to wait for us, but they probably had no idea that we had never been paid for our filming and we were working as volunteers. I never questioned it because that's the way it had always been right from the start. And I'd always been warned not to talk about the show's inner workings or details with anyone for as long as I could remember. Plus, I would not want to hint at or say anything that could potentially be negative towards my parents. We were just kids when the show first started and we all knew that it was Pops' show and our job was to do what was asked of us. So when she was living at home, it didn't ever feel like that big of a deal that she wasn't getting paid to like live her life. But now that she's moved out and now that filming has become quite a burden on her newlywed lifestyle, there are, are questions floating about that haven't really found an anchor yet. She drives Derek to work every day because that's like the only time they can really be alone and chat. And he's like, this is hard. And she's like, well, hopefully one day we can ask for less. Yeah. She's like, we just kind of do what's asked of us. And it's one thing that's not really done in our family is to like ask for things to be different. And so one of the first big filming conflicts, I think, starts to break open her belief in the family and their ministry of being on reality TV is all of her mother's births had been filmed. Josh's wife's births had all been filmed and these women hated it. As you can imagine, they did not love having a reality TV camera watching them give birth, but she knew that it was not up to her to get to decide whether or not the camera was in the room. And so she also knows it's not up to them to get to tell people. The line of command is you have to call production and be like, we're pregnant so that they can set it up so that you can tell your parents on camera. And then you're not allowed to announce it. The rights of the announcement gets sold to people. And it's like they announce it first and then you get to repost it two hours later. Yeah, so you don't ever get to announce your own milestones. You get to announce the announcement of your milestones. Also, you're not allowed to tell like anybody outside of your immediate family because it could get leaked. So you're allowed to tell production and then you get to tell your parents and then you have to tell people, Mag, and then people, Mag, will tell your friends. Yeah. 
also Jessa, her sister was about to get married. And so like a lot of her baby announcement was like scheduled around Jessa's wedding because I mean, we've seen the way reality TV shows like the Kardashians will geniusly like roll out information to like always keep the news cycle churning. But like you don't want to have one big moment cannibalize another big moment. So like she felt like her baby announcement was being scheduled. But also TLC is like fucked up. Josh's wife, Anna, had had problems with the crew using footage from one of her births that she had specifically told them she did not authorize. They cut it out for the reruns, but with later bursts, the footage was often added back in as a part of a flashback sequence. Yeah. That's fucked up. It is really fucked up. And they wanted to fight back, but however, according to IBLP teaching, Derek was also under my parents' authority and was supposed to obey them too. What a lucky teaching. So then they get a call about potentially doing missionary work in El Salvador. They go on a trip and a guy that they're working with is like, what if you guys came down here for like a year or two? And they're like, could be fun. Like it would be safer here than back in Arkansas. So she has the baby. She cuts a deal with them where like her mom and sister will be able to film her and they can use that footage. And she ends up being in labor for like four straight days. So they get a lot of footage out of it. Yeah. And she also like talks about the pressure of this conversation. So at first they're like, what if we film it? And she's like, I really don't want you to. And then they're like, what if we film it a little? And she's like, I really don't want you to. At that, Scott started tearing up. He'd been with the show almost since the beginning and we'd been through a lot together. He was Uncle Scott and I felt horrible talking to him like this. Can you imagine a grown man crying because he can't exploit your birth? And then the agreement they come to is that the mom and the sister can have a camera in the room that they will then send to production. And the only reason she agrees to this, I think this is really important, is because she's like, if I say no to this, then they'll loop my dad into the conversation and he'll be able to guilt me into a level higher than I'm comfortable with. So she like feels a lot of pressure to take this like lower level version because she's like, if my dad walks into this conversation, I'm screwed. I won't be able to hold my ground at all. The umbrella principle has sounded harmless enough when I was a child, but it was brutally effective means of instilling fear and controlling behavior in the lives of others, regardless of whether or not they were adults or children. The fear of what would happen if I stepped out from under his umbrella had bled into every part of my life and it left me second guessing so many decisions. So she has the baby. It was a long kind of tough birth, but they have the baby They go home. People gets to announce it. The network makes a ton of money off of a special episode about Israel's birthness. And then in May 2015, so this is like a month or so after the baby is born, I think, Pops comes into the room looking drained and worried. He looked like he'd forgotten how to hold the smile he wore so often. In Touch Magazine had gotten a hold of the DHS proceedings from years before about Josh. So the information about Josh is being leaked worldwide as well as the actual closed conversations that they had had with officials. They promised us secrecy, I said, when I could finally speak. They said it was private, that it was a safe place. How could this happen? I could easily remember how much it had cost me to talk about what had happened with Josh, how painful it had been to judge up those memories, and how frightened I was that he would be taken away from my parents as a result. How could anyone involved in the process be willing to release it to the media? As soon as InTouch published the story, the trauma started to replay itself in my dreams. The weight was enough to crush me. I wish I were dead. The nightmare started. It had been over a decade since the initial abuse. And until that point, I never dreamed about what had happened. But as soon as InTouch published the story, the trauma started to replay itself in my dreams. I had spent my entire life being taught that modesty was so important and that it was my responsibility as a godly woman to not behave or dress in a way that would cause any man to have impure thoughts. Now the whole world was able to read about and imagine what happened to me. I felt naked, ashamed, humiliated. I was being paraded through the streets, my sexual abuse being served up as nothing more than entertainment. And so she talks about a lawsuit that her and her sisters tried to file against the police department. And in touch. 
I mean, they released private legal documents about the sexual abuse of a minor to a fucking tabloid magazine. Yeah. They should be thrown in jail. They should be thrown in jail. In the months and years that followed, a lot of people have shared their opinions on how I responded to the releasing of the report. Some offered their support and their understanding, and I'm grateful to them. But others have accused me of blaming the wrong people. They said I was covering for my parents that it was my mom and pop's fault that all this happened in the first place. It wasn't and I'm not. I hold Josh responsible for his actions. And I hold in touch Bauer, Kathy O'Kelly, Ernest Kate, and the city of Springdale, the Washington County Sheriff's Office, and Rick Hoyt responsible for illegally releasing and publishing the report. For inflicting on me and my sisters the trauma of a second victimization. A trauma that was made so much worse than the first by the fact that it was so public. She is being hounded by paparazzi. People are obsessed with this story and it's so traumatizing to her to have to relive it constantly as just like a pawn in this greater tabloid game. So her family has a house in Oklahoma. Like a friend does. Yeah, they all just go kind of hide out, out of town. And Josh and his family go too. And she talks about how unsettling it was that he was there as like a victim of these attacks and not as the perpetrator of the initial attack. It felt weird that he was acting like this, but it was mom who dealt with it. Josh, she barked, it's not your fault that this was released, but you need to know that you were behind all of this. So don't be so arrogant. Josh's smile vanished. I'm sorry, he said. I'm sorry to you girls and that y'all are having to go through this. I guess he was just there like laughing about. He seems like a psychopath. He seems like an absolute fucking lunatic. So Pops was in game plan mode. He at this point had this guy, Chad, who was like his assistant, his wrangler, his CPA and his agent all wrapped into one. So they were threatening to take the show off the air. Basically, they were like, okay, you guys can come back from this. We've been putting up a child molester on air. And they're like, of course, Josh can come back to the show. But Pops is like, there's got to be a way to write this ship. There's got to be a way to reclaim the narrative. And basically what they come up with is if we can do the interview that will reclaim the narrative and make people on our side again, it'll be okay. And poor Jill raises her hand and agrees that she'll be the one to do it. I would be willing to do the interview. A wave of nausea hit me like nothing I'd ever experienced before. The room was spinning, the sound of my blood rushing my ear. I knew why I'd done it, but what had I done? So she and Jessa sit down with Megan Kelly. Answering all of Megan's questions with Josh watching from a couch just out of shot was like having a bandage ripped off of a deep open wound. It was agony, so painful that I didn't really pause to ask why Josh was allowed to be there in the first place. What's worse is the fact that I hoped it would calm things down and it hadn't. Luckily, they had this mission trip to El Salvador. And I think she's like, God, it couldn't have come at a better time. So they go down to El Salvador. Mike, the head of the mission, is like, oh, a journalist wants to talk to you. And she's like, no, they've hunted us down. You cannot let them know where we are. And he goes, no, 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 no. It's just a random interview. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're famous. And of course... Of course, it had everything to do with that. A few days later, when the Sun posted a grainy picture online of Derek at the mission alongside a story about how we'd fled Arkansas and how they had tracked us down in El Salvador, Mike apologized. They end up starting a show called Jill and Jessa Counting On as a way to relaunch the Duggars on TLC without Josh. And this one, I honestly don't really know when she even films it because she's in El Salvador most of the time. And it's still about the whole family, but she's like in the title of the show. I think she's in the title, but it sounds like it's about all the adult children. Like, I guess they like just have so many people to film. Now there's like 30 people to film because every adult child is married. They all have kids. Yeah. So I guess she comes home like three weekends a year and they just like shoot some stuff. Yeah. There's another controversy with Josh where he is in the Ashley Madison League. So Ashley Madison was like a website for people to cheat on their wives. Yeah, it was like an affair website. It was an affair dating app. And Josh was one of the names that came out as someone who was using the website. And it was just like another shame upon the family. Just like add it to the Josh pile. I think he's then sent to rehab again. 
The conversation changed soon after that, but I was left with his words ringing in my head like a bell. I love my parents and it made a lot of sense that they would want to protect and care for their child, but I couldn't help but think about the lengths Pops had gone to in order to guard Josh's privacy and to keep him from being publicly humiliated. I mentioned this to Derek and he said that he had noticed the same thing. The feelings grew stronger within me and by the time I went to bed, I felt sick in my core. All I had wanted was privacy and space to grieve without feeling the weight upon myself to fix the situation. When I'd needed it most, it had failed me. The umbrella teaching, sorry. I felt as though I, as a woman, was expected to do all I could to protect Pops and Josh. Nobody appeared to see it differently. All she wanted was for her dad to be like, you don't have to be on TV to like write the family ship that Josh sunk. And he didn't. So Jill and Jessica counting on continues filming, but she wants to continue with this mission trip. She feels very called to being a missionary and she loves being in El Salvador and she has friends there and she feels more comfortable there. And they want her to come back to shoot promotions for Jill and Jessica counting on. And she refuses. She's like, we cannot come back from El Salvador until July. I don't want to do this. And they just like keep on saying no. They're having a hard time fundraising because people think they're rich from TV. And they at this point have no idea what their obligations are to the show because she's unaware that she's under contract. She thinks she's a volunteer. They decide to go to the table with Pops and be like, do you think we could get paid for being on TV? (laughs) And this, I think, is a really interesting look inside the mind of Jimmy Bob Dougie because I feel like this conversation in itself, like I wonder if we should just read it because it does give me an exact window into like why she's afraid to ever have a conversation with him. I'm like, you can't talk to people who talk like this. Derek looks at him and says, do you think we could maybe make an income from the show at some point? I'll be the dad. You be Derek. Okay. Derek, from the very beginning, our family has viewed this as a ministry, an opportunity to share with the world that children are a blessing. Back when we started this show, we didn't make anything off of it. I was the one who was able to negotiate a good deal for our family. I could retire right now. The only reason I'm still doing this is for you kids. So she's like looking, she's tense. Derek says, well, what about us receiving a certain percentage of what comes in? Could that work? We used to pay Josh, but decided not to do that after a while because it wasn't a very good idea. Michelle is the one who had all these kids. We wouldn't even have the show if it weren't for her. So it's obvious that Pops is like, shut the fuck up. And so he says, yes, that's true. But we've added a lot of value to the show and done a lot to contribute. After all, the show is called Jill and Jessa Counting On. I know y'all did some iPhone video or something for the pregnancy and birth stuff, and we appreciate all of that, but it takes teamwork. We all have to help out. Like some of the kids are filming a lot in other areas of their life. And at times, some will be more involved than others, but it averages out in the long run. And then he turns to Derek and goes, what are you worth? $10 an hour? 12? That's what I pay some of the others who work for me. I mean, ice cold. And then Derek comes in swinging and says, well, what's the show worth? You can't appraise the value of a worker to a business until you know what the whole business is worth. So I guess before we can tell you what we're worth, we need to know what kind of deal you have with TLC. Can I say socialism? I wonder if he knows that he's a socialist. I don't think he does. Because I think American capitalism would say, no, you're worth what we'll pay you. And then the profit goes to the brilliant owner of the company. It is quite literally the tenets of socialism that a worker's like contribution to a company should be what they are worth. Oof. So he goes, Derek, when we got into all of this all those years ago, we really just wanted to reach people to show that children are a blessing. It's not something that we went looking for. God brought this opportunity to us and we really feel like he has blessed it and helped us reach so many people who would otherwise never step foot in a church. Nearly every day we're getting emails from people who say they've been impacted. They've shared how they've given their lives to Jesus or started going to church again or decided to have more children just by seeing Christian values portrayed through the show. 
Think about how many people we've been able to reach on a secular television network. I'm not saying your work here isn't great, but we are reaching more people through the show than you are here on the mission field. And Derek says, I understand Pops, but we would be grateful if you could pray about possibly paying us something. Jill has contributed a lot of hours to filming over the past decade, and she has nothing to show for it financially. I know she's the first daughter to get married and that you're still figuring this out, and we get that it's awkward, but I'm sure as more of the other kids get older and married too, they'll be thinking about these things also. I mean, so you can really see that he had kind of just expected, Jim Bob had expected that like while staying under both the umbrella and the clipped wings situation, like no one would even consider that they should have financial independence. I felt something change inside me. I was still mortified by the thoughts of Pop feeling angry with us, but I was proud of my husband too. He'd fought for this family just like he'd promised to do the day we got married. So they're on this mission trip and they're supposed to go back to Houston to film promo for Jill and Jessica counting on and they because they'd been bouncing around so much, they'd promised that they wouldn't leave the mission until July. They were like, the only promise that we've made is to not leave the mission until July. We have no obligation to this show. And TLC and the network are freaking the fuck out because they're like, you literally have to come film promo. They're like, you're the name of the show. And also, can I say, under the network's understanding, they are contractually obligated to come back. Like they don't know that Jill has no idea that she's under contract. Saying no to the Houston trip felt like torture, but Derek and I had been doing it for weeks now and we were committed to standing firm. So they're getting calls from their siblings, from their parents, from the network, from this random guy, Chad. Everyone is pressuring them to come back. At one point, the dad is like, if you don't come back, you're getting sued. And so she, with no understanding of like what contract she's under, is like, I'm scared that I'm going to go to jail for refusing to do this promo shoot. They're refusing. They're like, whatever, we're just going to hunker down and refuse to go. Because they're giving options. They're like, well, what if you come down here? Like, what if you meet us in the airport? We'll do something in a green screen. Like, but we're not leaving. We're not coming all the way back to Houston. Finally, her dad starts calling, getting angry and angrier. And they just have to turn off their phone. They will not take his calls. Then mom and pops like show up in El Salvador. With a phone and surprise them. Yeah, they have like a really awkward like weekend together. (laughs) While you're planning all of your special holiday season meals, let your everyday weekly meals be taken care of. Hungry Root fills your fridge with healthy food and simple recipes so that you can fill your schedule with stuff you actually enjoy doing a lot more. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They have healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. All you have to do is go to their website and take a short, fun quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, your dietary preferences, and they will select a bunch of groceries for you that will turn into the easiest, most delicious recipes you've ever had in your entire life. Hungry Root recommends groceries based on your taste. You can take their suggestions or choose anything you want. You can get your pick of fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks and sweets, so much more. I'm on a real, like, nice, cozy rice bowl kick, and I feel like using Hungry Root to make sure that I'm getting a good amount of veggies without overdoing it so that I have so much to waste has been just a dream come true. The best part of everything is that Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole, trusted ingredients. Spend less time shopping and cooking and more time enjoying healthy food that you actually love with Hungry Root. Right now, Hungry Root is offering our listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash worm to get 30% off your first delivery and get free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know what we sent you. In August, they're back in Arkansas after they fulfill their promise to not leave the mission until after July. They're planning to go on another mission eventually. 
I mean, ideally quite soon, I think they want to go back, but like it keeps getting delayed because she actually ends up getting pregnant again. And this was 2016 when everyone was freaked out by Zika and you just couldn't send a pregnant woman to Zika zone. So she's like desperate to get her hands on this contract that her dad made her sign against her will or like without her knowledge. And she keeps like being like, can you just show me what I signed? Can you just show me? And he's like, no, just know that you have to do whatever they tell you until 2019. You signed for five years. She has a partial copy of the contract. There's a few excerpts, including a clause that stated that I had to reveal to the network if I discovered I was pregnant, as well as the final page that had mine and my siblings' signatures inked in. And that's when she has confirmation that, in fact, the date she had signed was June 20th, 2014, the day before her wedding. So it was, in fact, the thing she signed at her rehearsal dinner that her dad was like, don't look, just sign. Yeah. So then they get a text that there's going to be a big family meeting and they get to this family meeting and Pops announces that he's going to give everybody $80,000. And they like don't really understand what's happening. And he makes a little swipe at Derek where he's like, yeah, this is because of Derek. And everyone is like, wow, thanks, Derek. But they are like, oh, that was aggressive. But also it turns out that there's a contingency. They're going to give everyone $80,000 as a little thank you for all their hard work, but they would like them to sign a new contract. So this contract is a seven-year extension with an indefinite potential add-on. So it's just a forever contract for $80,000. And it's not with TLC. It's with Mad Family Inc., a company that mom and pop had previously set up. So for the next seven years, plus an unlimited number of years beyond that, if the company should choose, we would have to commit to making not just ourselves, but our children, many children yet to be born, available to any show that Mad Family Inc. created. Insane. We would be paid for that work, but at a rate that we would have to accept without negotiation. We would also have to sign an NDA, which would remain active for the rest of our lives. Pops had been clear that we were not allowed to talk about the deal with anyone else, either each other or our other siblings or anyone outside the family. To me, at the time, the level of secrecy and control that Pops exerted on us felt normal. The siblings are talking about it a little bit, being like, oh, are you guys going to sign the contract? And they have to kind of just be like, no, but they can't discuss it at all. So then the dad comes to the table and is like, it feels like something is going on right now. And Derek is like, yeah, you broke our trust. And the dad is like, you also broke our trust because you won't let us own you. And we don't trust that. And he's like, sorry that you didn't know what you were obligated to do. And Derek's like, well, she didn't know because you didn't show her the contract and you still won't show her the contract. And he's like, well, hopefully we can move on from this. But he will not give them the contract that they signed to TLC. It's so crazy. These conversations that she'll play out. I will say, of course, there is writer bias. Like, of course, coming from her perspective, Jim Bob is going to sound loony. But I do think the level of respect she has for her dad, I actually feel that she's playing it down. Like, I'm sure that whatever happened in real life was actually like way worse. Yeah, I think the part of her that wants to protect her family, she's like, this is the part that I can live with. Yeah. And reading this, I'm like, well, that is insane. The way your dad like will only have a conversation with himself. So ultimately they're like, okay, you know what? As a show of good faith, we're just going to give you the money. No strings attached. We hope you send the contract, but like you can have the money anyway. So they don't sign the contract. They return to El Salvador. She's still like unable to sleep because of In Touch's publication of her trauma and the way that she was hounded by paparazzi ever since. Next, I want to do another mission with this bigger place called the International Mission Board. And I guess it's a super difficult placement to get because you have to be with the church for three years and then you have to go through like this intense screening and then you're on a wait list. And they finally, after years of going through this process, are told like, all right, it's your turn. Like, we're going to find you a place to go be a missionary. And the problem is they're like going through the thing and they're just like, well, we just need to know if there's anything about the show that'll get in the way of your mission. And she's like, oh no, like, we're leaving it. Don't worry. Like I was going to do the show, but I'm out. And they're like, fine, but you need to get something in writing that says you are released from your contract. And she cannot. 
So she writes an email to Chad and the network and then also calls her parents to be like, by the way, we are officially stepping down from the show and we would like written confirmation that you agree. Chad calls them in a tizzy and like loses his mind. The fallout was instantaneous. Chad emailed back demanding to know who else we had sent that email to. TLC emailed back too, wanting to talk. We told them that we were happy to have a call and share our side of the story. We wanted to explain about how we didn't even know about the contract. At first they agreed, but then Chad must have gotten wind of the call because they looped him in on the email thread. From then on, it was Groundhog Day, the same challenge over and over. Every time we tried to get TLC to give us something that showed we were released from the contract, we hit a brick wall. Literally, they are not allowed to even speak to technically their employers without going through their dad, who is getting them involved in illegal contracts. And at this point, she's 26, I think. And pregnant. So they like officially withdraw. Chad is also in charge of their finances. So they had established their own ministry, Jill and Derek, in order to fund their mission work. And they are like, bro, leave us the fuck alone. And so he just like steals all their money and leaves. And they were like, we're too tired to handle this. So can I say something that I find very interesting? Yeah. Derek had gone to school for accounting and was an accountant at Walmart. Yeah. And then he went back to school to become a minister. And then later he goes to law school. He's a little student of the world. I find it interesting that they hired somebody to set up an account for them when he was quite literally an accountant. Can I say, I think that it was like partially the dad being like, Chad handles this for the family. And then Jill being like, we've got this. I feel like if I understood a single thing about numbers, I would also look at forms. Yeah. I look at forms I don't even know. Even though they can't get it in writing that they're leaving the show, they're like, we're not filming anymore. So get what you need, but we're out. So they do five hours of exit interviews. And she says, like, as she drives away, it's so fucking weird, but it's just over. All my life, I'd been taught that suffering was good. For anyone doing the Lord's work, pain was accepted and embraced. When people criticized us in the press, it was a sign that the ministry was working. When filming was hard and demanding, it was a privilege to serve the Lord. But she is like going through agony. So she is about to give birth. She had been in labor for 36 hours and her baby seemed good. They were doing the midwife thing at home. But then the baby was like reverse breach or something. It's like he was like hammock style. Something really bad happened. And then they get to the hospital and then her uterus ruptured. And she like can't push anymore. And the doctor's like, you have to push. The baby's heartbeat is like no longer viable. Like you have one last push to get him out. And Jill just like passes out and loses consciousness. And she just hears them be like, oh my God, emergency C-section. So they have to give her a C-section before the anesthesiologist can even get there. It's a lot of emergency stuff. And it turns out she was like lost half of her overall body blood volume. She was in the hospital for days. She said like she was screaming in pain. And then it hit me. I'd had an epidural. If the pain was so strong that it could break through drugs that strong, something was seriously wrong. And then of course the baby is born. The baby had been oxygen deprived for a little at birth. And had swallowed some meconium. So then the baby, it turns out, has some bleeding in its brain. They end up being able to save the baby. They end up obviously saving Jill. But they won't know for like 18 months if there is lasting damage. So she had not put her dad on the visitors list for her hospital stay. Her mom was on. Her sisters were on. And she's like out in the hallway when she's visiting her baby and she sees her dad. And because everybody knows him since he's a celebrity, he's been like allowed to cut the line. And he's like, hey, how's it going? A lot of people are asking about him. There was a text message that had come in from Chad, who was still working with Pops. Get me a picture of that baby. And so I guess Derek goes, don't ever ask somebody else for a picture of my child. Chad responded five minutes later. I haven't asked anyone for pictures of your children. I have no idea what you're talking about. But the fact that the dad, knowing that his daughter almost died and the baby almost died, is still like, but how do we get people mag their cover? Yeah. Moving on and letting go from the past was an impossible task. It didn't matter how much Derek and I talked about building our lives together. What future I dreamed of or how badly I wanted it to begin again. I felt stuck. I felt like I was in chains and I couldn't break free from the past. 
My heart was open to the possibility of a new life, but my head was full of reasons why I couldn't. She is like obsessed with this anxiety that she has around breaking free of the umbrella, the respecting of your parents, the number one authority in your life. And she is trying so hard to get this form saying she's like free from filming obligations so that she can move on with her future. But she's so tied to her parents and she's so afraid to step on toes about being like, give me the fucking forms or I'll punch you in the face. She's also having a lot of anxiety and guilt because of the physical trauma of her second birth where she realizes she might only have two kids. And she was raised under this teaching that like you have to have a fuck ton of kids. Otherwise you suck. And so she like feels this sense of like she's not enough because she might not be able to have a massive family. And she also has this moment where she's like talking to a mutual friend and her dad happens to be there and they're like, how are you doing? You healing up? And she says, kind of, but it was rough. I don't know whether I'm able to have any more kids. My friend reached out to put an arm around me, but before she could say anything, Pops' voice filled the corridor. We don't know that for sure now, do we? I turned. He was looking right at me, smiling. He meant well, I guess. But in that moment, I was mad. I wanted to ask him why he thought he had the right to comment on my uterus, but I bit the words back. Interesting. (laughs) Jill, I wonder where your personal belief on other people's uteruses begins and ends. (sighs) Because clearly you sense that it's wrong for that man to determine what you can do with your body. I would like to turn a quick eye to your husband's history of the platform X. And then she comes out that she had actually used birth control after she had her first baby because she had had a C-section and they were like, we really don't recommend getting pregnant again until you're all healed up. She felt so guilty because in her belief, it went against the way I was raised. Yet it was a decision that had caused me no end of guilt and I'd kept the secret from nearly anyone. I'd always been taught that most people who were saying they stopped having children on the advice of their doctor were using it as a cop-out. IBLP's view was that a lot of people with small families were basically lazy. Feeling overwhelmed, stressed out, or like you couldn't cope with having more kids was no excuse. In fact, the only acceptable approach to the matter was to leave the decision up to God and trust that he would provide the grace to require to cope. Anyone who wasn't coping just wasn't relying on God fully. Can I say, if you're unable to have kids, isn't that God too? Okay, yikes. She starts to realize when she can't talk to anybody and she's having these problems with her family that she doesn't have anyone in her life that she feels comfortable speaking to because she was told this never disrespecting the ministry, never stirring the pot. She like realizes that she's actually an extremely hollow, boring person. (laughs) Her words, not mine. She calls herself completely hollow because she doesn't know how to have a real conversation with people because she's so used to like putting on a shield. I'm hardwired to not be critical of my parents or anybody, not my siblings, not my pastor, and certainly not my friends. And so she's trying to figure out how to be vulnerable with people in order to like have interpersonal relationships. But she's also talking about the double weirdness of being a public figure and how you want to protect your privacy, but you can't open up to everybody, but everybody actually already knows your inner working. She'll be like, oh yeah, I have the babies. And they're like, well, don't you have babysitters because of all your siblings? Like the things that people already know about her, because everybody knows so much, she can't tell them anything real. Yeah. Only when the doors at the big house were closed could I relax and be myself, whoever she was. And of course, she's more and more alienated from the big house. One day she talks to Derek and she says, what do you think about pants? And he's like, they're good. And she starts like reciting Bible verses that she'd been taught are the reason she as a woman cannot be wearing pants. And she's like really tossing the idea around. And then her sister wears pants and makes the news. People are like, holy shit, that girl is wearing pants. And so then she wears pants and a photo of it ends up on the internet. She actually runs into her family in town on the day that she's wearing pants, but like avoids them like the fucking plague. But then her parents find out about her pants and they get really mad at her. 
she's like, well, how come my sister wore pants? And they're like, she discussed with us her decision to wear pants and you just wore pants. And that feels so disrespectful. And like she starts to recognize her dad's use of the Bible as like a guilt weapon, but she still feels like very stressed and alienated. And I will say like, obviously this is about something larger than pants and also not like, do you know what I mean? I do think the pants were an issue, but I do think she's using pants as like a sort of blanket statement for most decisions that she has adjusted in her adult life. Mm -hmm. It is like effective though. Like I'm reading this and I'm like, holy shit, what are they going to do about the pants? (laughs) And I also will say I felt very frustrated by Derek's like indifference to the pants because I am like clearly she was like going through some fucking turmoil and for her to be like, yeah, that's fine. I don't really care. I'm like, well, you should care because it's not that big of a deal. But anything that is a big deal to your spouse, like should be a bigger deal to you, even if you think it's silly. I really don't like Derek, but I understand his place in this operation. Okay. And then she gets her nose pierced, which I actually am like, that's crazy. I know. If you thought pants was like the clothing of the devil, then I cannot believe you got your nose pierced. And that was just chill. So about her dad, she says, it seemed to me that he was realizing that he was losing control over me. His text verses reminding me to honor thy father and mother and every conversation we had just heaped more and more guilt on me. So she sends a text to her dad being like, you have to stop doing this. I like can't talk to you if you're going to be emotionally abusive. I don't know what I thought would happen. I guess I hope that Pops would give a genuine apology, not one that he followed up with attacks or justifications. But none of that happened. Pops dug in. 2017 ended badly. 2018 started worse. So they are told by the mission that they were supposed to start a placement with that like they just can't wait any longer for this letter from TLC, which I think they've been trying to get since 2016. Yeah. And so they're like losing out on this thing that matters a lot to them. They're begging their dad and Chad for the contract. And the dad is like, oh, I didn't know this was about a mission trip. If you had just told me what it was about sooner, I could have gotten you the form. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, I don't have to tell you what everything is for. This is a contract with my name on it. Give it to me. Also, it turns out that he had said she was in it until 2019, but actually it ended June 2018. And she's like, maybe if we had known that, they would have been like, okay, we can hold out for six more months. Yeah. So Derek ends up taking the LSAT and going to law school because he's like, I think we need a lawyer on our side. Yeah, it's like, well, you didn't have an accountant on your side when you were an accountant, but whatever. (laughs) Then they get a letter from the IRS that they owe a fuck ton of money. And Derek is like, actually, I still am an accountant. So he looks at all of the forms according to the IRS. And apparently the dad had filed that he had paid Jill like $130,000 that they were never paid out, which like still is not that much money. I feel like for like 10 years of filming is really a bad amount of money. Yeah. So they talk to Pops and they're like, what is this? And he's like, none of your business. (laughs) He just keeps saying it's important not to live off of your life savings, but to reinvest it. And they're like, yeah, no, totally. But like, what is it? And so they end up going to see a mediator because they're like, we can't have a conversation with him. This is insane. And they go to this mediator and the dad ends up bringing up a letter that they had sent him that was like accusatory about the way he is. Plus the text she sent. He's like, you keep really hurting my feelings. And she's like, I'm sorry, but you keep on being really mean to me. And then he's like, well, I'm not talking to you until you apologize to me. And she's like, I'm not apologizing. And then the dad got up. He towered over me, his whole body fueled with anger. My face flushed red, my eyes filled with tears. You know why you're crying, don't you? Your conscience is talking to you. That's why you're guilty. And he just starts screaming at her and like pointing at her and going, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. That's why you're crying. And finally she goes, you know why I'm crying? My voice cracked, my eyes burning. It's that you think I'm some kind of horrible person just because I wear pants and I have a nose ring. 
yet you see this girl outside. The dad had seen a girl with like tattoos that said you're an inspiration to me and been like obsessed with her. You see this girl outside and praise her. That's why I'm crying. I'm evolving and changing just like the girl out there, but you can't see it. You treat me like I'm a prodigal who turned her back on you. You treat me worse than you treat my pedophile brother, which zing. Oof. Now we're getting to it. Are pants worse than pedophilia? You be the judge. I would say within the church. It depends who you ask. And then the moderator speaks up and is like, I think we should take a break. And then the moderator's like, I don't, you need professional help. This is not something to be moderated. So the moderator gives them the names of some Christian therapists. And so they start going to therapy and like really talking out their trauma. And the therapist is like, you need to have people you can talk to in your life besides me. And has them like write out the people they consider themselves close to. And it's not her family. It's so interesting to me that like their family, because of this don't stir the pot rule, is so disconnected from each other. Like, can you imagine having that many siblings? And And like like, not one of them, you know what they're up to? Yeah. And it seems like when they leave, they have to leave completely. The therapist is helping them. And Derek is trying to go to law school. And so they need money for him to go to law school because they're like, well, we don't have any money, but we also can't get any grants because like they think we have money. So they write one final thing. They're like, we need the contracts. We need the money. We at least need our records. And they get a text back from the dad saying, Jill and Derek, we love you both and want to see our differences resolved. I've been praying and fasting about all of this. I need to share my heart with you. I've made some bad decisions along life's way and I've hurt you all. And I'm so sorry about that. I was wrong for the things I have said and done. And I pray that you will forgive me. And so it's like looking pretty good. But then the next half of the letter is, okay, so there's $130,000 missing that the dad claims to have paid Jill and like reported on his taxes, but that they don't have. And so he writes out like a line by line, like things he's bought Jill and how it equals $130,000, like housing and feeding her. Like her phone and like when she was working and living there, one of the lines is furniture, $5,000. If you don't want the furniture, we will buy it back after four years of use for 3000 Like cell phone, car insurance. Eating at home, $3 per day by 12 years. That's $13,000. And then like a gift to the Dillard Family Ministries. You paid yourself a salary from this. And what the hell? So then he's like, so now that you see how much we've cost, we'll still go above and beyond and still give you $20,000 for the difference which they're calling only like $10,000 because of all the money they spent on her, raising her as a child. Yeah. So then they have to hire an attorney. They're like, well, this is insane. (laughs) So they send a letter being like, we need the contracts and anything else that I as a shareholder should have already seen. Her dad goes ballistic. First, he hit the phone. There was texts and voicemails and calls every day. And then when they didn't answer, he sends the siblings. The siblings are texting and begging her to stop. And then they start visiting her and being like, why are you doing this? And they're talking all day and then they're talking all night. And they'll be like, Derek has law school exams in the morning. And they'll go, what? How come you won't talk? This is way more important than law school. And so she finds out that her siblings are now being paid for their participation in the show. And like one of the strings attached is to like do the dad's bidding. So they're there to like secure their own financial security. So he gets the text and says, you've got 24 hours. And it's a page that says we will give you $20,000 if you sign an NDA. And they're just like, no, this can't be worth it. And then finally, in the middle of the night, the mom comes and drops off the 2014 contract, the one that she had signed the day before her wedding. And they find out how much essentially the show was worth. And over the years, it had made like $8 million, plus multiple six-figure payouts for the one-off specials about her birth, her wedding, etc. Yes. Not to mention like all of the paparazzi photos that they make. I actually wonder if he had gotten a pretty bad deal and like he was only getting paid for the show. And I wonder if TLC was reaping all of the People Magazine rewards. 
I bet you they were, but also don't forget that they were doing all these speaking engagements, like all these Christian speaking engagements. Because remember, he like bought himself a plane to multiple fly planes. himself. At this point, he had multiple planes. Yeah. And a ton of properties. So I will say, I don't know how good of a deal he was getting from the show. It was definitely at least enough to be like paying out the kids a little. But then they were also doing all these speaking engagements. Like he didn't need to be robbing his children. So then they sue him and they end up getting paid back everything they're owed, which is five installments of $175,000. They get the money. She's no longer a part of the show. This caused a huge rift with her family. And her dad sends her a text being like, you can't be at the big house if I'm not there. Basically like uninviting her from her family home. In the meantime, though, she's like completely isolated. She's not completely isolated from them, but she's living her own life. She even has a pina colada one day. and She even posts a photo of her drinking a pina colada one day. And they even do the craziest thing of all, sending their kid to public school. Which is huge because in their community, homeschooling is like the most important thing. And the idea is like you can't let your kids be ruined by other families. And then she was like, I guess my husband went to public school and he's not so bad. Yeah, IBLP put a lot more energy into teaching me to fear the world beyond its doors than it had put into teaching me to trust God and to discern for myself how to reach a good, wise decision on any given issue. Ain't that the truth? So they're going to therapy pretty regularly and it's helping her really like work through a lot of her issues. Like drinking a pina colada and wearing pants. God wasn't angry with me. Muscle memory told me that I was sinning, but common sense, long and deep conversations with Derek, as well as my own Bible study, prayer life, and conversations with other Christians told me that I was actually okay. She starts to come to the realization that IBPL is actually a cult. (laughs) Her grandma dies and she goes back to the house for the first time in ages and she sees her dad and he ends up inviting her back to the house, but she says, no, she wants to grieve alone. And I think she's like establishing a really solid sense of independence from her family where like she wants to be a part of their lives, but not like enmeshed in their lives. So she's going through life and then she gets a text that something with Josh has happened again. He's under investigation. Her dad holds a family meeting and goes, that's a lie. That's not true. He's not under investigation. Yeah. He also puts out a public statement being like, there's no investigation. Meanwhile, there is definitely an investigation. Also at this point, in order to like kind of get rid of Josh, but to keep him set up, I will say they went through all of this effort to like get some financial support for the work they'd already done when they were like, okay, Josh won't stop looking at porn. So we're just going to buy him a car dealership. Like they bought him a business to get rid of him. She just wanted a look at the contract that she had signed and she had to hire a lawyer to do it. So then she gets a knock on the door one day. It's Homeland Security being like, we have some questions about your brother. And she's like, well, can you come back? My husband's here. And then she has to go through everything. And she's like, honestly, I don't know much. Because she didn't know much. She had never been to his car dealership. And of course, the paparazzi is horrible. She starts having panic attacks. I mean, I can't imagine how scary it is to be re-victimized like this. Because every time there's new news about Josh, which is every day, it's a 24-hour news cycle. There's 100 people to take photos of. So they reference that initial in-touch expose. And so like her childhood trauma is back on view for the whole world. Yeah. And so it turns out that Josh has a significant amount of child sexual assault material on hard drives. He has one of the most insane sentences of all time when the FBI landed at his car dealership and went to take everything. He said, what's this about? Has somebody been downloading child porn on the computer? Which has to be one of the most damning sentences of all time. I can't believe (laughs) that anyone would say that out of their mouth. She has to get deposed. She's pregnant. My deposition lasted seven hours. Every second felt like torture. She ends up having a miscarriage. It's just like a really bad year for her. Yeah. She ends up going to trial and she's like, I've come to the conclusion now that I've heard what he's done that Josh does have to go to prison. She's like, it is unsafe for him to be out amongst people. He has to be locked up. He won't stop hurting people. And also she's like mad that her parents kept saying we can handle it ourselves, and then like putting a predator back out into the world. Yeah. She gets pregnant again. 
Josh's trial is happening. She's on the witness list. And so she's just like waiting around because any second she could be called to testify. He is found guilty. She ends up not being called in to testify. She goes with Derek to court one day because when she was on the witness list, she wasn't allowed to go to the court. But now that she's off the witness list, she could go. And she was just devastated to find Josh sitting there like he hadn't done anything wrong. She felt like he was just sitting there like waiting for a pizza. Later, Derek and I sat on our laptop and started to type. We wanted to put out a statement on our family blog and we wanted to do it quickly. I knew exactly how I wanted to start and Derek watched as I typed. Today was a difficult day for our family. Our hearts go out to the victims of child abuse or any kind of exploitation. And then after that, I hit a block. What do you want the people to know? Derek asked. I closed my eyes that we have been lied to so much and that finally today we got the truth. And now we have the epilogue. And the epilogue is basically about how since she has split ways with the family and left the church or like left IBPL, so many people that know her family have come to her and been like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't believe in them? Are you sure they're such good people? They've done good things for me. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And she's very much like, listen, what they're in is a cult. I will talk to anybody who's willing to listen. I think I owe it to them to hear them out, but I can't go back. She says, only now can I look back and see things clearly like the way IBLP fostered a culture of manipulation and abuse. And the fact that Pops eventually put the show above his children or the toll it took on my own mental health. She also says at the end of the day, she's still grateful it happened. She goes, I recognize all the perks I got for being on the show, that we did have a better life and eat better food, that I did get to travel and meet new people. The highs are not automatically erased or invalidated by the lows. Oh, and then the other thing that happened is because of the high profile nature of Josh's case, they threw out the five-year lawsuit that they had been attempting against the sheriff's department and In Touch magazine, even though the judge said releasing this information to In Touch magazine was illegal. It was too conflated with the other case. And they were like, we can't even try this. She said like how awful Josh was and the parents kind of bled into their case. And even though they were completely the victims of their case, people just thought the Duggars were such bad people that they like couldn't let them win. Yeah. I think that this book obviously wasn't the deepest book written about these topics. It wasn't the most enlightened book about this topic. One thing that I think came out crystal clear is the difficulties and the way the establishment is set up to punish the victims of sexual abuse. Yes. The system, like the American legal system. The American legal system and then when conflated with a fundamentalist religion. Mm -hmm. The one thing that she is able to see clearly is like why coming forward with your trauma is so dangerous. She was a child who was promised by her parents and the law that her testimony would be kept private and it was leaked. And then when it was leaked illegally, the law came in and said, well, there's nothing you can do about it. And then the, even if she had won, the process of having to fight those battles time and time again was almost worse than the initial abuse itself. Yeah. And that that is what anyone who is the victim of an assault, when people go, why didn't you go to the police? It's because that could be the worst part of it all. And that like the system is really built to allow people accused to like be able to humiliate it and like the emotional toll it takes on somebody who's already experienced a lot. Yeah. And I think that was the part that like broke my heart the most. No, it is devastating. And it is like inspiring to see the lengths that she has been able to come through such a significant brainwashing. I think that's what I find so interesting is who gets brainwashed and who doesn't. Yeah. Like who dies in it and who doesn't. Why is her mom who used to be in a bikini almost dying to have these children every time? Apparently she was bedridden with morning sickness in the first trimester of every pregnancy. She lost multiple children. I mean, that's a physical toll on your body to go through more than 20 births. Yeah. Especially if like you are not somebody who has like easy pregnancies. Like how did she get there? And raise her children in it versus the children who are raised in it less. Like who leaves, who stays, who gets brought in. This is also the white reality TV is so evil. Yeah. 
Because the addiction, I mean, you just can't have children on reality TV. It should be illegal. I mean, I really think it should be illegal to put children on television. I'm sorry, the way that the dad like chose the future of their television show over protecting his daughters is heartbreaking on every level. At one point when they started Jill and Jessa counting on or whatever, the producer goes, it's not fair to punish the victims by not letting them have this TV show anymore. And that's why we're going to continue the TV show. Shoot someone's head off. I also wonder what the laws are. What is that law for children actors where like 10% has to go into an account for them? Oh, yeah. But I wonder if because... It's like reality TV is a whole different book. But that's what I'm saying. Like the child labor laws have to catch up with the influencery times. I completely agree. I do think the fact that like people can put their kids on social media and profit off of it. I mean, whenever Bug does an ad, I put the money directly into her own account. Also, all of the money you make yourself goes to Bug. That's so true. Final thoughts? Final thoughts are, you know, I think that there's still like a level of religious that makes me extremely uncomfortable, but I'm proud of the lengths that they've gone. I don't trust Derek within a fucking football field of me. I don't like that he has a writing credit on this book. I don't understand why this is the cost a memoir, Jill Duggar with Derek Dillard. And yeah, like, why was he part of writing this? This was her memoir. Because I think he's like an Andre Agassi to her Brooke Shields, where like her thinking for herself is thinking the way he thinks. Yeah. Like in order for her to exist on her own, she has to exist on his own. And it stresses me out quite a bit, but I understand why it's like the next possible step. You know, overall, I think she probably has a good heart and a lot of bad information. Anyway, counting the cost of memoir, I guess consider what your consumption is like. Somebody gave these people all this power and it wasn't me. Wasn't me. If it was up to me, TLC would just be house swapping shows. I didn't say let's give these absolute Christian freaks who believe in like killing women to make more children a platform. I never watched an episode of this show. So Claire. Yep. How many worm teenies? Zero. Zero teenies. I would want no teenies, not even a worm colada. How fertile do you think is the soil? I think this was like a four. I give it a two out of five. Really? Yeah. I think there was a lot of information in here that people have been asking for. Not us, but people. Yeah, I guess there's two full stories that are told. All right. I love you guys so much. See you next time, sailor. Thank you so much to our beautiful five-star reviewers. Thank you, Survivalist7819. There is no one I would rather survive with than you. Llama's mama, you are the cutest llama. I would love to see you in perhaps a pajama. Thank you, Katie Purdy, meow, meow, the sweetest little cat I have ever seen. Maybe the only cat that both Buck and I wholeheartedly approve of. Edgar PW, oh my God, thanks for coming in with a pow, baby. You and your review have just absolutely exploded in my heart. Thank you, Braylon Harris, seven. Paris, more like an heiress of inheriting the most incredible reviewing skills I've ever seen. Thank you, Vanessa. I appreciate your ability to cut through the bullshit and leave me this beautiful review. Thank you, Mo098. There's nothing I love, Mo, than a perfect review. Too happy to think of a name. Oh my God, I am too happy reading your review to think of a good quip. Linda Espana. I would love to go to España just to meet my dear friend Linda, my favorite gem in Spain. Thank you, Crystal Macros. Oh my God, this review is just to the macro the most is what I meant. I don't actually know if that's what that word means. Thank you, Chels Prim. Oh my God, there is 
nothing more prim and proper than a perfect review. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. I love you guys like so much.